3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am on your dial. It's the 16th of April and you are here on Zoom with me, Max. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Shahrazad. Good morning, Max. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Max. Good morning, Shahrazad. How are you both going? Good. Well, this is our third take of our introduction, our live introduction, so <laughs> quite good. Um, that's, I guess, one of the benefits of doing this via Zoom. Um, but there are also some negative parts of Zoom. Yeah, uh, don't want to get Zoom bombed. Um, which for listeners who uh, aren't familiar is when a bunch of uh, undesirables jump onto your Zoom conversation and make it not so fun for everyone. Mm. Yeah, and it's been happening heaps, hey, because, you know, Zoom is being used more and more around the world ever since the the COVID-19 pandemic, as people are using it as a way to, like, stay in touch for social stuff and for work. But there's been real concerns about, um, you know, cyber safety and security with the platform, like so many of these platforms. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye out. Mm. But this morning, it is also really great because it's allowing us to all see each other and to record this intro. Um, whereas, you know, last week, listeners might have noticed that, um, you know, we were all sort of recording things separately and then collaging it all together. Whereas today we're, we're giving a different thing a go. We're replicating the studio live, except um, after three takes. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Maybe one day you'll be lucky enough to get a blooper reel. So what do we have lined up on the show this morning? Um, So first we're going to go to the news. um, And after that, we've got a couple of tracks lined up. um, Carly's put together for us. Um, From there, we've got an interview with Roxanne Moore uh, from Natsal's. Um, we then have a poetry segment um, with Elena Gomez and a track by Basil. Um, yeah. Basil Byrne. Basil Byrne. Um, and then there's an interview I did with Tabitha Lean. Um, and then another interview with Sanmati Verma from Undocumented Migrant Solidarity. Mm. Yeah, I'm actually so, so excited. excited. Oh, jinx. <laughs> so excited to listen to all these interviews. Up next, we have um, the news with Kate Kelly. A coalition of Central Australian Aboriginal organisations is calling on Territory and Federal Governments to, to support the establishment of a special areas to protect their elders and other community members considered most vulnerable to COVID-19. So in a statement that was sent to um, sent to the governments, the coalition said that there was a short window in which to develop an appropriate plan and that the group had identified a hotel to be established as an elders protected area for the tri-state central Australian area. 
So the hotel would be available across the region if and, and potentially when high-risk community transmission occurred and would include appropriate isolation practices and management practices. The statement described the necessity for the immediate establishment of the protected area as absolutely critical. And the group is now waiting on a response. A little bit closer to home in Melbourne, demand for the services of some food relief charities has surged by up to sixfold in the past month, as half the nation's businesses either cut jobs or reduce hours. So adding to this issue is the fact that donations from supermarkets and other businesses that usually give in bulk have dried up, the charities have said, as those companies work to keep their own shelves stocked with essential items following a wave of panic buying. Over the Easter weekend, droves of international students formed a 200-metre queue at a food bank in South, in South Bank on Sunday and food relief centres have opened up in outer suburbs and regions to serve new cohorts of the community in economic distress. Younger women, who make up a large proportion of the badly affected retail food and accommodation sectors, have been requiring emergency food packages at alarming level, according to three um, inner Melbourne city charities. Moroccan Soup Bar in Fitzroy may have closed its doors to customers, but founder Hannah Asafiri won't stop making meals. So she started a campaign to provide up to 300 free meals a day to workers at St Vincent's, Royal Melbourne and Northside Clinic in Fitzroy. So to help out members of the community who want to buy healthcare workers um, dinner, you can, um, they can jump online, head to the Moroccan Soup Bar website and order one, one meal for twelve ninety. Over social media, Hannah said, In this crisis, we have the opportunity to reimagine a better world and to return to our values of social and community justice. And that's all the headlines for Thursday morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am on your dial. Up next, we're going to be chatting with Roxy Moore, Executive Officer of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, who will speak with us about the urgent need to immediately release people in prison to stop the spread of COVID-19 and prevent COVID-19 black deaths in custody. Thank you so much for joining us today, Roxy. Thanks for having me on. So last week, NATSLs released a policy statement on behalf of all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services, calling on Australian governments to take urgent changes to the justice system in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What are some of the changes that are urgently needed to prevent COVID-19 black deaths in custody? NATSLs are really concerned about COVID-19 getting into prisons. Um, What we've seen globally is that when that happens, it spreads like wildfire. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been identified as one of the most vulnerable groups to um, getting COVID-19, but also um, dying from COVID-19. So we know that our mob are more likely to um, die in custody, and we're really concerned that it's only a matter of time before there's a black death in custody due to COVID-19. So what we're asking for governments to do is urgently release First Nations people from prison with um, priority for those who are most vulnerable. So our elderly, our mob who are chronically ill in prison, those with mental health um, issues, um, women who are survivors of family violence, um, young people who are particularly susceptible to like these lockdown measures that they're doing, um, which have lifelong impacts for young people. Um, We're really concerned about people who are in prison on remand um, and making sure that people who are in prison, um, who are mobbed, are getting the medical care that they need. Um, We're hearing that there's not enough testing of COVID-19 happening in prisons. And we know that for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, our medical concerns aren't taken as seriously, um, which has been a a contributing factor to a lot of black deaths in custody. So we feel that governments need to urgently act to immediate release First Nations people um, from prison, um, giving priority to those most at risk. And what are the risks of ignoring these calls? If the government doesn't act and doesn't release people immediately from prison as you're calling for, what do you feel will happen? We're really concerned that there's going to be a black death in custody and that it's only a matter of time that this happens from COVID-19. We're concerned that it it is already in prisons. We've heard um, a number of instances um, in Queensland and New South Wales where um, prison officers have tested positive for COVID-19. But the response that we're seeing from governments so far is just to lock down prisons. And we're seeing really concerning reports about the amount of time that people are being locked down for. Um, in, in places like Queensland, it's sounding really concerningly like solitary confinement, you know, for weeks on end, not being allowed out of your cell. Um, and we're really concerned about people's um, human rights during um, these lockdowns. Um, we're concerned about people not having access to their families um, because prison visits have stopped. 
um, and also having access to legal services and other support. And we feel like this needs to be free um, and um, made possible by the prisons um, so that everyone's got the support that they need. And where there has been a case of COVID-19 in the prison, um, we need to make sure that families are being notified and that um, for mob in prison, if they do have any flu-like symptoms, that they're able to get emergency medical treatment um, immediately and get testing um, because we know that these are exactly the kinds of things, this lack of inaction, that could lead to a black death in custody. And you mentioned before that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities, both inside and outside prison, are likely to be, be hit the hardest by the pandemic. Could you explain that a bit more for listeners? Yeah, so our mob have been identified by the Chief Medical Officer and um, the government as one of the most vulnerable groups to COVID-19. And that's, you know, because of the legacy of colonisation in this country means that um, the gap of life expectancy, but also chronic illness and medical issues with our mob is much greater um, than for non-Indigenous people. So our mob are more likely um, to have um, chronic illness, to have uh, disability, um, to have mental health issues, um, to have uh, a number of factors that make us more vulnerable to to getting um, COVID-19 with fatal consequences. We're particularly concerned about it getting into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, um, particularly for our old people because and our elders, and, and this is just going to mean a devastating loss of, of culture, of knowledge, of wisdom for our communities. And we feel like governments need to do absolutely everything in their power to make sure that there is not a black death in custody from COVID-19. And Roxy, are you concerned that the state of emergency powers that are being rolled out and introduced in response to COVID-19 around the country will be used to justify continued and increased over-policing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? We're calling for governments to take a decarceration approach to this. The last thing we need is more people coming into the justice system during this time because prisons are going to get overcrowded. COVID-19 is going to be rife in there. We've seen globally that there have been people dying in prisons, um, including prison offices, um, where governments have let this get out of control. So what we need to see is police taking actions to stop the flow of people coming into the justice system, and that includes with these COVID-19 new offences. Um, we're particularly concerned about this being over-policed on our communities. We're already seeing some evidence of that coming out of New South Wales, um, where it's not, in fact, the most... where it's not, in fact, the suburbs which have the highest rates of contraction of the virus that have the highest rates of infringement, but in fact, it's those that have high population of First Nations people and other people of colour communities. So we're really uh, worried about how this is going to play out 
particularly in remote communities where people are crossing borders and there's various rules in place there. And what we're calling on is for police to, instead of fining our mob and putting people in more difficult situations, which will end up with more people in prison, actually taking like a public communications approach and a public health response, which is about working with communities to find out the solutions that are going to be effective locally. And so why is increased criminalisation not the answer to a public health crisis like we're seeing at the moment? Increased criminalisation is absolutely not what we need right now. It is going to mean that more people are going to come into the system, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who we know are over-policed and the systemic factors why that happens. This is going to mean that prisons are going to get overcrowded. We know that COVID-19 is going to spread like wildfire throughout prisons. And what this is going to mean is that we don't even have enough ICU hospital beds to deal with the pandemic at the moment. And governments have an opportunity here to stop the spread of COVID-19 in a confined environment. You know, you think about those cruise ships. Prisons are the same situation. Once it gets in there, it's going to be really difficult to stop. And we're hearing really concerning things like there's not even enough soap available in in prisons at the moment and that people in prison are actually having to buy soap or they're just not able to get it at all. And some people are having to use dishwashing detergent as well. So prisons are not safe in this pandemic, and we're really concerned about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in prison and that it's going to lead to a black death in custody. Increased criminalisation is just going to lead to higher risk for everyone, and we are all better off together when we're working together for a solution, and everyone has their role to play. We are all going to be healthier and safer and be able to flatten the curve if everyone is playing their part, including police, the courts and governments, to make sure that people are released from prisons. We've seen globally that this is the realistic response that governments are taking to ease the burden of COVID-19 on hospitals and to stop the spread of it. Mm. And so let's talk now about um, the support that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services around the country are providing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, have there been any changes to that support, and particularly in terms of not being able to access the custody notification service? So all of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services around the country are still operating. Um, we're moving away from face-to-face services to, you know, online and phone services. So most of our offices are no longer open to the public, but you can call um, to get legal advice still, and the numbers are all available on the ATSL's websites and on social media. Um, so please, I, I want Mob to feel um, confident that they can still get the legal support that they need from our services. Um, that's definitely the case here in Victoria with Val. Um, in terms of custody notification services, these are still operating. Um, what we are hearing concerns about is that um, COVID-19 procedures are acting as a barrier to MOB getting access to custody notification services. Um, 
So we're really concerned about that and we want to make sure that everyone knows that it's your right still to access custody notification services and that um, police shouldn't be able to use any COVID-19 um, related reasons to deny you access to that service. We need to make sure that everyone is playing their role in this and that includes police, the courts and governments. And how can listeners lend their voices to this urgent call to release people from prison to stop a COVID-19 black death in custody and prevent the spread of COVID-19? I would say to listeners that you should reach out to your um, elected representatives and tell them that this is an issue that matters to you um, and that you're concerned that governments aren't doing enough to um, like the immediate release of First Nations people to prevent black deaths in custody and the spread of COVID-19 in our communities. Um, I would also suggest um, jumping online um, and searching for the hashtag clean out prisons. Um, we're encouraging people to take a photo of themselves um, with soap and the hashtag. Um, and as I said earlier, there's really concerning reports about prisons not being safe in the pandemic and not even having enough soap available for people inside to take the precautions they need, like washing their hands. And this is basic human dignity. So we're asking people to um, send soap to prisons um, and in order to to show that we need um, governments to take action on this so that people are safe. Um, so if you want to jump online and search for the hashtag clean out prisons, um, there's more information available there. Awesome. And is there anything else that we didn't get to cover in today's interview that you wanted to raise? So, so far, what we're seeing from governments in response to COVID-19 in the justice system has been to lock down prisons, to stop visits, um, to put new people coming into prison straight into isolation. Um, but lockdown is not going to stop coronavirus. Decarceration will. And that's why the NATSL's calls in our policy statement go to everything that we need police and the courts um, and governments to be doing to make sure that people are being released from prison where that's possible and also to stop the flow of people into prison. And that includes police um, really focusing on diversionary options, on warnings and cautions for low-level offences, for moratoriums on warrants for low-level offences for this six-month period that we're all going through this, and that they absolutely must not be using the COVID-19 new fines to over-police our communities. We are all better off when we're healthy and in our communities and working together to beat coronavirus. Amazing. Thank you so much, Roxy, for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast today. Thanks so much. So you're just listening to Roxy Moore. She's the EO of Natsels. Up next, we have an interview I did earlier with Basil Byrne, who just released a single on Monday. Um, it's called Listening Out. Have a listen. Thought I had you pull up. Thought I had you pull up. 
shaved, I'm not about to start that now. I'm all set, I wanna see your face, give you a hug and dance around. Over the phone's not quite the same. Joining us right now, we have Basil Byrne, who's joining us from, where are you, Basil? I'm in Epilock, which is uh, 20Ks out of Bendigo in the bush near the lake. Yeah, so we're capitalising on this Zoom in the times of COVID-19. Um, but uh, more importantly, you just released a song on Monday, um, a single. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, Basil? Yeah, I'm really excited. So it's my first song that I've put out um, by myself. Um, it's called Listening Out. Um, and, yeah, it's I guess it's like electronic music. Um, but I, I really wanted to make music that is telling my story. It, I kind of see my music making in my solo music as um, like a personal, like a diary, but like for everyone to <laughs> – the pages of the diary that I let everyone read <laughs> – um, so it's kind of all of the thoughts that are going around in my head. And, um, yeah, I like singing in, um, in my accent and in my voice. So it's important to me that I sound how I sound in everyday life. So, um, it's like ochre electronic or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to explain it. Well, well, t- well, tell us a bit about that. Like, um, like for listeners who don't know who you are, um, you know, you just mentioned your accent. Um, so, you know, why is that important to you? And, you know, give us an introduction of who you are and why that accent is a central part of this particular single in, in particular. <laughs> particular single in particular. <laughs> yeah, you get what I mean. Yeah, particular. <laughs> um, well, for me, I guess, um, yeah, I look around at media and stuff and I don't really see many people who look like me or who I feel like represent me. And that's partly to do with my, um, how, how I was brought up. I grew up in Western Sydney and, um, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I see, I hear all this music and it's in like an American accent or English accent or something like that. But like, I don't really hear much music in my accent. And if I do, maybe it's like folk and stuff like that. And I really like folk, but also I really like R&B and I play a lot of like Turkish and, Oh, I used to play in a Turkish band, Galata Express, and I play Balkan music now. And um, for me, I like to bring together all of the parts of my life. So mainly I'm a trumpet player, um, 
but also I'm a teacher and um, for me um, making for me making music is um, about being myself um, and so yeah I, for me it's really important like I, I was working with a producer um, Mr. Kapal that's my friend Fabian and um, he showed the song when we were developing it he showed it to uh, someone who did, does like ads who does music for ads and they were like oh it's a really good song like maybe you should consider doing it in like a more neutral tone or um, <laughs> you know something that's like less less Aussie and I was like nah <laughs> And I guess it's important for me to own all the parts of myself, so um, all the parts of my cultural background, um, all the good bits of that and all the, the bad bits of that. Um, yeah. Um, and, well, I guess, like, now is a really interesting time to release a single. Uh, what was behind that? Like, so we're in a kind of, kind of a lockdown situation in Australia, kind of, because we're still allowed yeah. out and that sort of stuff. But, like, you know, m- music venues are shut. Um, you know, how how is this for, like, for you releasing this single, but also more broadly for, like, artists and in particular women artists? Hmm, good question. Um, so I guess for me <laughs> the reason I probably um, – released it is just because I've been at home and I haven't had gigs. So I'm, I've got four bands that I'm part of. The Deans of Soul, um, which is like a soul band. Um, the Seducerphones, which is like a Balkan brass band. And the Op- Opabato, which is another Balkan brass band. And Belly Savalas. So four bands. And um, I'd be gigging a few times a week and um, rehearsing and all that sort of stuff. And I don't have that, so I'm not going out to gigs. And I'm, I've got... Um, I guess a bunch of time or like I've got space for, for music making and um, I've been working on this track for a while and kind of been on the back burner. And when all the gigs were cancelled a couple of months ago, I was like, okay, well, before lockdown really went all, all ahead, I decided to, um, I decided to finish it off, like go over to my producer's house a couple of days and then we finished it off. So I was like, at least I'll have one track and then get that out. Um, what was the other part of the question? As, like, women, like, how how do you reckon the sort of music industry is going to cope in COVID-19? Like, mm-hmm. related somehow back to, like, uh, COVID-19 slash uh, politics of COVID-19 <laughs> is the question. <laughs> I think a lot of, um, like, live musicians, so I'm predominantly a live musician and, um, that's just been really, really strange because, um, yeah, can't rehearse, can't play gigs, and that's, like, the main ways that I make music. So I guess, yeah, I've moved towards this, like, recorded space because it's a lot more accessible. And actually a lot of people are listening to music a lot more and on social media a lot more. So, like, I was posting, like, little teasers and stuff like that, and heaps of people were, I reckon, heaps more than normal <laughs> were listening and actually there was like I got emails like and ads were coming up on like Facebook and, and stuff like that saying like um remaster classes for Ableton or like, you know, learn Ableton or learn how to produce your own stuff or learn how to release your own stuff. I just noticed all of these things and I actually feel like there's a community of people that are um organizing together. Um and I think that musicians and artists are pretty used to like connecting over over the internet and like often you're into like some really niche sort of music or art and you find people 
on social media who are also into that. So I think that, um, yeah, I've noticed a lot with COVID that people are making more music. Um, I guess I like more recorded music. So like making little videos where, you know, there's like four pictures of them and they're playing a different instrument in each picture. Um, and it's really interesting to see what music people are making in those videos. It's like kind of just the music that you can make, but also maybe it's a music or a musical idea that they haven't been making before. Yeah, I've, I've noticed a lot of people have been putting out tracks actually on online, um, and and also a lot of people have been listening, which is which is cool. Listening out, but I'm trying to my track. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised, but that's all I want to say. And what about um, coming up? So this is like uh, your sort of first solo single. Um, mm-hmm. Are you going to be releasing more things coming up? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when because. Um, <laughs> Who knows when I'll be able to go over to my producer's house again. We're trying to figure out ways of maybe um, doing it or maybe <laughs> before I can go over to his house, maybe I'll figure out how to use Ableton and, and, and Logic <laughs> and produce my own track. Who knows? I've, I've been trying to do that. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure when, but I've, def- I've written heaps, a bunch of songs. I've been writing songs for a few years and um, – I haven't really got them past the campfire. I think I played one gig at Series Ones at the the food market, <laughs> um, but that's that's about it. So yeah, like I have a bunch of songs. It's just when am I gonna have the chance to record them and put them out there? Mm-hmm. Not sure, but I've, I've got I've got two that are two thirds done. Do you want to give us <laughs> a little taste? Like what 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 they're about? Is it linking all the sort of uh, stuff that you mentioned earlier about like different uh, cultural encounters that you've had along the way. This, it's interesting. I, they're kind of about like a bunch of things. I always like my mind doesn't really think about one thing at once. <laughs> it often is thinking five things at once, and so my songs are a bit like that. So I guess you could kind of take it as like love and relationships, or you could take it as like. Like listening out is a bit like me being anxious, living in a cul-de-sac, hearing cars come past and like being like, is that my friend coming over? Oh, no, my friends never come over. And like in all my songs, I kind of try and keep it gender neutral um, intentionally. So like I don't mention my gender, like I don't identify as female, but like um, so that like all my friends who are gender diverse can relate to it in terms of their um, gender identity. So that's kind of like – and. It's subtle. I don't know if, if if it's always explicit, but I try and make room in all the music for for that, I guess. And and hmm, what are the other two songs? It's really Melbourne. One of them. It's like a, it's real Melbourne. It's a few references to Melbourne. And the other one. And the other one is kind of about um the feelings that you have. And so you might be able to think about that in terms of a relationship. But also I work at um at uni. Um, and we talk a lot about like culture and race at uni and the subjects that I teach. And part of that is, um, students, I guess, like, uh, one of the subjects I teach is like how to teach Indigenous perspectives in, in, um, education. So that subject to me is just, is having conversations about race and how people see their, their, their selves, themselves and their relation, um, to culture. And I think that that can often, 
that journey of like expressing yourself and understanding your cultural background can be like quite um, nerve wracking or something. And I think that's because white Australia. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that maybe people have had a lot of experiences. Um, I work at Vic Union, so a lot of people um, have quite diverse cultural backgrounds. Um, and, yeah, it's really interesting to see um, the journey of students through the course and, and students who, like, you know, move through anxieties or move through, um, uh, like, initially some students feel, like, really shy and they're, like, maybe trying to affirm how Australian they are. And to me, like, being Australian or whatever, living in this place, it means heaps of things and can mean heaps of things culturally. Um, yeah, so I guess... There's a like I kind of leave it open ended on purpose. They're not they're not always like sometimes they're a story, but it's it's meant to be kind of open ended. You know, art, art is in the eye of the beholder. Oh, and you yeah, and you can really hear that with this track. Like it it doesn't sound like you can definitely hear influences from sort of different regions of the world. Uh, well, that's what I heard anyway. Oh, the breakdown. That's so like this band I listen to, Alton Zin. Yeah. Um, and they're like, they're like Turkish, they're like, um, modern remakes of like Turkish 70s psychedelic stuff. And I was like, I've just been listening to them so much. And also I listen to a lot of Arabic music because I, um, learn Arabic. And, um, yeah, that breakdown section is like all the dance tracks that I yeah. listen to. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I want my own dance track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can really <laughs> how, how do you honor your politics and your music at the same time? through because you said a key a key part of um that single in particular or your, your music that you want to show is um this sort of western sydney part this this soccer part you know um but that's within a colonial context right so um and you know knowing you like you have that sort of like um uh sort of decolonial politics you know so how how do you honor that through your pop song in really subtle ways yeah, true. Oh, yeah. Okay, so it's probably more a, a subtle way that I, um, in my music, um, like at the end bit, that's like really nice for me, the ending of the song. It's like this huge dance track and then at the end there's just like, there's a trumpet solo and it's like R&B and I've like always loved R&B, like since I was eight sitting in the back car of like my, you know, the soccer boys, some, you know, 17-year-old who just got a subwoofer and hearing that like bass, that's like a vivid memory for me like at the soccer park in a, like with six subwoofers, I really wanted the bass to be amazing. <laughs> and I think that like having great bass is like a key to having good life. <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess for me, I want people who love bass to love this music. And so I want to make music that is like exciting um, for people that listen to R&B. And yeah, so that that end bit is R&B and also like the dancey part of the song is like definitely influenced by like Turkish and Balkan and Arabic music. And so like maybe people who listen to those sorts of music will also want to listen to my music. So it's really subtle. It's definitely subtle, but um yeah, that's kind of how it is. And and one more thing about what you said about women in music. I've found it really difficult to navigate um promoting my tracks without um having to uh promote my body right yeah yeah let's like talk I've about that a lot of people um who promote tracks and get a lot of traction um 
yeah, like it's it's about like having a particular body, like being skinny or like super like traditionally beautiful in all the ways that that can be. Like there's still ways that it can be, and I've I've found it really weird to um, choose images and like to know what images to choose. And I think um, yeah, I think every artist goes through that like that thing. But also, someone said to me like, oh, you should just do a booby shot. You'll get heaps. Like if something if you include something with boobs, then like you'll get more likes. And like it is true, and that sucks. <laughs> um. Yeah. Anyway, I just that that's something that's sat like kind of uncomfortably with me, and it's been a bit of a time to navigate in terms of like um, pictures. But yeah. But you found some awesome pictures that don't sort of like sexualize a woman's body, or like you know like show like a particular type, or reinforce those particular like patriarchal or like structures yeah. around like what a woman should look like. Um, um, yeah. Do you want to just quickly briefly describe the sort of um, image that you have with that? Um, single. Well, some of the images are just like (laughs) selfies and stuff. And one of them is like me wearing pink because, like, in the past, I haven't like growing up. I hated wearing pink because I was a tomboy, and I hated people making me girly because I felt like I, you know, they they wouldn't let me do certain things if I went into that girly box. And so, like, yeah, coming into like being able to wear pink and that that whole kind of conversation. Um, but the other picture I used is one my friend took of me when he was visiting, my good friend Bill, shout out to Bill, um, when he was visiting in Melbourne. And the other one, the main image that I have is actually like nothing to do with bodies at all. And it's like completely, um, there's an eye in the middle of a lake, in the middle of like a volcano. And my friend, um, Imam from Jogja, um, like made that and, because uh, I just wanted, I what I did is I, I sent I sent him the he he lives in like a commune in in Jogja, Jogjakarta in Indonesia, and um kind of like a collective house, like anarchistic house. And uh, I met him when I was over there last year, and I saw his art and I loved it. And so he listened to the song and he just did what he thought. Um, and the first picture he gave me was this like skinny white woman listening like kind of a bit naked. You couldn't really see any of her like rude bits. <laughs> Um, but she had headphones on. She was looking into the thing, and I was like, "No, I don't like this." <laughs> I was like, "There's enough pictures of skinny white women. Send me something else, <laughs> like something nothing to do with bodies." So we took the body out, and he put this eye and made it really psychedelic. And I was like, "Yes, that's more my vibe." <laughs> so good. Um, and Basil, before we go, is there anything else that you wanted to add, or um, any shout outs you wanted to make before we play your track? <laughs> I want to shout out to like 3,000 people. No, nah, probably about 30 people who've supported me um, through my music journey. Um, Anna, Duve, Ario, Luke, Declan, um, Ruben, Bellies, all my bands who I've ever played with, the Deans, um, Fabian for producing the tune, um, everyone who's listened to the tune, anyone who's listened to me whining. My, I remember two years ago, I, my housemate Sam, I was like, I'm going to put it out, I'm going to put it out, and it's just been a huge journey. So thanks to all my friends and everyone in my community who's enabled me to make music. Alara, there's too many. <laughs> yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. 
visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Up next, we have a new regular poetry segment called Writer's Readings. Each week, we'll be bringing you the voices of local writers reading a selection of their work. Today, we hear a few new poems by writer and editor Elena Gomez. My name is Elena Gomez and I'm a poet. I am going to read some very fresh poems that were written in response to some friends and people sending me a word or phrase which I responded to. Lecrisette for Eddie. When I was 25, I faked a wedding registry. I had my eye on a royal blue Lecrisette crockpot. My mother, Karl Marx, taught me about the commodity. But also, see, I had satisfying meals from this royal blue Le Croissant crockpot, including a dal and also a no-need bread. And then I bought one in the colour sage, with the rest of my cash haul from the fake wedding. I had found a young droid to rope into the grift, but it left me when it realised I did not really love it. Machines inspired many fiction writers, but for poets, we just needed them for grifts. I learned to cook before I learned to love. I am still learning to eat. Carafe. Adjusted. Sometimes a direct address is called for. In this case, there's a clear, cruel joke you started off. I get it, but I cannot partake. We tried caramel and caress, but I'm convinced you began the conspiracy. To tire or warn me. I'm a fraud. I won't do it either. I mean, I'll break a carafe over a skull if the occasion calls for it. But has the occasion called? Is this poem a refusal? Will I be forgiven? Can we pretend I did it right the first time? And you thought, great. And we met up one day and made falafels and fed them to a table full of hungry school children and their fathers. I ate a bagel with everything seasoning and chopped tomatoes and tahini. Greyhound number two for Laura. Imagine if you could run really fast. Fast like faster than everyone else. Not cheetah fast, not Usain Bolt fast, or maybe Usain Bolt fast. Imagine if at the end you got a full sink your teeth plunge into a juicy little hair. It glitched out at first, but then you got to the muscles and deep into the flesh. Pretend for a second that you don't need the rabbit, but a big flat cushion. A round donut, kind of gently puffed seating, and you could nap all day. I mean like all day. Between flesh to sink your teeth into and a luscious nap, what's good? Animal Crossing for Emily. One year, some time ago, my boyfriend bought a PS4 and we have talked for hours about a Switch. Nintendo, not the other kind. The jealousy nudges gently at first. The new Zelda, I will never play. My old BFF, Yoshi, and Princess Peach. But then, of course, there is Animal Crossing and it contains my two favourite things animals and crossings. The jealousy jumps up a notch. I'm looking at Tammy's outfit. Now Annalise's eyeliner and bright red Audi who I am sure I'd like to be. I would like a tropical moo also. I would like to live at Animal Crossing. I would like to rewind too but without the mistakes or fear. I'd still rather be an animal of course but it's unwise to focus in such sad ways. Eggplant emoji for Romy. Charred eggplants are coming in the upgrade. 
They were held up by tongs to an open flame on your stove. They got crisp on some corners. The skin shriveled. On the TV, Jude Law was putting on an American accent and wearing a little white cap. But the eggplant emoji began to break down. The new iOS was prepared only partly for the outcome, which was that for every eggplant emoji you received unwantedly, there was a method to chart and crisp it and return to sender, totally harmed. Everyone is a communist in a crisis. Belize. Everyone is a communist in a crisis. A crisis is a communist, everyone. I am a crisis. I am your crisis. We are communists. A crisis averted is not us. Capitalism is a crisis upon a crisis upon a crisis. Everyone is a, everyone is, is a, a com, commie, communist. We are communists on our birthdays and on state mandated work days. We are communists when the pranks abound and when we are told to buy gifts and when we are told a strike is illegal. We are done with reverent awe and we are communists when we refuse to pay landlords. Is this a crisis? I am a crisis. We are on repeat and spin cycle wash. It is 9.58am on the day of the crisis, on the day we all become communists. We are not socialists, and we are not the progressives, and we want no war but class war. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. So now we go to my interview with Tabitha Lean. Tabitha is a Gunnitsmara woman born and raised on Ghana land. Having spent almost two years in Adelaide Women's Prison, an Adelaide pre-release center, and a total of 19 months on home detention before and after the jail experience, Tabitha argues that the criminal injustice system is a brutal and often deadly colonial frontier for her people, and she is now committed to working towards the total abolition of the prison industrial complex. She believes that until we radically reimagine and decolonize the system, her people will not be safe. Tabitha is also a master's student at the University of South Australia. Just a content warning here, this interview includes discussion of sexual assault and some sexual violence related to the criminal injustice system. Hey, Tabitha. Thanks so much for making the time to join us on the show. Um, I've already briefly introduced you, but I was wondering if you could let listeners know a little bit about yourself. For sure, and thanks for having me on. Um, first, I want to start by acknowledging Ghana country from where I sit today. I'm a Gunditjmara woman born and raised on Ghana land. I'm Gunditjmara through my mother's birth line. So I'm a visitor in this nation and always seek to walk through it with soft and gentle feet. 
Um, my background is that I was a teacher way back when, and then I went to work into politics for a while. Then I started working in the government managing Aboriginal health services. And then after losing my way and some series of unfortunate events, I ended up in Adelaide Women's Prison for two years. And I've now done around 18 months on home detention. So that's a, that's a part of who I am, but not all that I am. But certainly that's important for context for today's conversation. Yeah, definitely. And thank you so much. So uh, I guess in relation to that, you've been raising a lot of awareness lately about the comparisons that people have been making between COVID-19 isolation and the experience of being incarcerated or in home detention. So could you give us a bit of an idea of why these are really inappropriate comparisons to make? Absolutely. And we're seeing it right across the board. So just general people who are self-isolating as well as celebrities and politicians referring to their self-isolation experience as imprisonment or home detention. I find it highly offensive as someone who wears the scars of incarceration on my body for them to liken their experience to the brutality of incarceration. I think it's important because it reduces and minimalizes and trivializes our experience of incarceration as well as home detention. While we might not be in an institution, we are still on what is considered house arrest. So I feel really, um, as someone who's made it out of the prison alive, and that's not a common thing for Aboriginal women as well as Aboriginal men, I feel a real responsibility to raise my voice, to raise awareness of what's happening for my brothers and sisters inside, as well as other men, women and children who are in custody in our community. So I have been raising my voice. That often comes at a great risk to my own liberty. I've been eligible for parole since February and have not had it granted. I suspect a large part of that is because I've been speaking out quite vocally about the system. But from my perspective, I will continue to speak out, even with their foot on my throat, because it's so important, because our people are vulnerable in there and in incarceration is a colonial frontier that is violent and deadly for Aboriginal people. Definitely. And I, I guess following from that, how is the pandemic currently impacting people, particularly Aboriginal people who are incarcerated, and how do you see it intersecting with the conditions that people are already facing inside? Well, I'm very concerned about Aboriginal men and women and children in custody right now. We've got all sorts of situations where we have Aboriginal people who have higher comorbidities of chronic illness, so they are much more susceptible to diseases like COVID-19. But there are other issues as well. We, we have inadequate health care in prisons. We have Visits have been stopped right across all the prisons as they've gone into lockdown. So we have people who aren't having contact with their loved ones on the outside world. So part of what I've been doing locally here is advocating for the immediate release of all children in detention where it's possible for them to return home they should. I've been advocating for all remand prisoners to be released immediately onto bail or home detention. Part of the reason they're not releasing people onto home detention, I'm told, is they don't have enough hardware, which is quite extraordinary when you think about the cost of keeping someone behind bars compared to monitoring them in the community. 
But we also have a situation where there are people using up home detention hardware in the community, like myself, who are considered low risk, uh, who are over their parole. When I could, they could essentially be putting me onto a curfew if they didn't want to grant me full parole, and my hardware could be given to someone else. I think the reality is for prisoners is that we are disposable humans in community, and so the impetus to save us or protect us during this time is very low. It's also something that you can't get a lot of traction in the mainstream media about issues for prisoners. I know Debbie Cure has been doing some great stuff about raising awareness of prisoners even having access to soap in prison to wash their hands. As we know, that's one of the public health messages to prevent the spread of COVID. At the moment, we are not even sure that every prisoner has their own cake of soap to use. These are extraordinary times and we, we just aren't doing enough to protect people inside. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of raises concerns as well um, in relation to the increase in policing um, that has sort of been a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I was wondering if you could comment on um, the effects of increasing policing as well in this area, considering that people are already being um, subject to such horrible conditions within, uh, you know, the carceral system um, and now might be increasingly exposed to it as a result of the pandemic. So many thoughts on this. It's definitely one of the things that concerns me that whenever we have a situation like this, the state seeks to extend their powers of surveillance and control over the community, which some might argue is relevant for the particular times that we're in. The concern I have is just how far it takes it. An example is I'm on home detention and so I don't have the opportunity to go for a walk for my own health or fitness or to take my children to the park. But the other day, my kids hadn't left the house for four weeks, so I made I contacted Corrections and said, look, I'd really like to take them just to the local park. We want to pick some gum leaves because we want to do a eucalyptus lens. This was something important for us spiritually and for our culture. And they granted me a half-hour leave to walk down there. Now, when we went to the park, we were there to collect the leaves. And a community member actually got on their phone and reported us to the police for being at the park. I find that extraordinary. Now, for me, as an Aboriginal woman who was there with her Aboriginal children on home detention on a half-hour release, if the police had arrived, I would have been petrified. And I think about this for every Aboriginal family that is out in the community that could potentially have the police pulled on them. What we know from our experiences is the police can be lethal to us. So I remain concerned about that for our community and for our children. The other interesting thing, I think, is that in some states, and certainly this was proposed in South Australia, it didn't make it through the parliament, but there's been some talk about anyone who is caught not complying with the social isolation measures should be placed onto home detention with a bracelet around their ankle. Now, that's extraordinary. These would be people who are not convicted of a crime being monitored from their homes and their their movement restricted for not complying with the government order. I I feel like extending the carceral state is just extraordinary. But I do have to say there's also a part of me that goes, I would love for the general public to feel for a moment what it's like to be on home detention. 
because I I wonder sometimes if the fact that we've got politicians and celebrities and general members of the public likening their self-isolation to home detention, maybe they think that's what home detention is. Maybe they think it's simply about staying at home and not going out. So there was a part of me that that kind of like, uh, not very logical part of me, but that sort of raw emotion response that said, you know what, yeah, whack a bracelet on their ankle and they can see what it's like for us to be incarcerated in the community. But obviously I've moved on from that thinking because it's not, it's, it's not helpful and I'm very committed to not extending uh, the carceral state at all, so I, I don't agree with it. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually my next question does lead on from that um, quite well, which is, how would you like to see the public conversation around this change? Um, where are the points that this needs to turn on? I think people need to realise that when we throw people in jail and we have this idea of we lock them up and throw away the key, that's not the way it works. There is very few people that remain in jail for their entire life. Even people who are granted a life sentence are eligible for release onto parole. So everyone makes their way back out to the community. So we need to have a general sort of acceptance and welcoming of people back to the community. I'd like, I like to think of us who come out of jail as returning citizens and what could we do as a community to welcome back people who have done their time for most people, they've done a lot of soul searching, a lot of work on themselves, changing their life, their way of thinking, and how we can support them to re-enter the community. Because the reality is people like myself walk amongst the general community. I am a contributing member. I volunteer. I go to university. I participate in daily life, albeit with a, a, a restriction on my mobility and um, constant state monitoring. But we are real people, we are humans, we're not disposable and we've made mistakes and everyone makes mistakes. But I think as a society we should be measuring ourselves on how we support and welcome people back into community. So I'm trying to raise awareness about what does home detention really look like, how oppressive it is and are we actually doing the best thing by people in terms of rehabilitation and support for incarcerated people by locking them up in jail, putting them on home detention. So I share my story. As I said, sometimes I, that does come at great risk because it exposes myself and kind of puts me out there for criticism and people will often want to research everything I've done or anything I've said and hold all of that against you. And they use it to diminish your voice. I think that's probably the thing that I struggled with the most is um, this feeling like my voice is no longer legitimate or has a place in society. But despite that, I put it out there because it's, it's just so important. I mean, we have so many, we have tens of thousands of people locked in prison today. All of those people are very slight minority will come back out into community and I'd like to see us welcome them back and make spaces within workplaces, community organisations for them to be productive members of community again. 
Sorry, I don't know if that answered your question. I feel like I've just gone, woo. <laughs> no, I think that's perfect because I think, um, you know, the question around the COVID-19 comparisons to home detention really does link into this broader conversation about how we think about carcerality and state surveillance and isolation. Um, so I really appreciate you bringing all of that up. Um, is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you would like to raise? Look, I think I, I'm always happy to talk about what are the conditions of home detention as well. I've spoken a, quite a bit about that on Twitter and I've written a couple of articles I'm hoping that will get published. But um, if I could just talk about a couple of the conditions that I think are really important for the community to understand why their experience of self-isolation is not the same. On home detention as part of my orders, I am required to let two officers, nearly always men, into my home at any time of day or night which means that sometimes at 11 o'clock at night, I'll be sitting up in bed with my PJs, scrolling through Facebook, and I'll hear the knock at the door, and it's two corrections officers. I have no choice but to open my door and let them into my house. As a single woman, that's, that's a struggle sometimes, and I don't feel safe often doing that, but that's one of the examples of how we are controlled. Another is that I am required to give random drug testing. This might include urine testing, which for women listening, I'd want you to know how this feels as a woman to have two male officers in the bathroom with you watching you drop your pants and urinate into a cup and how invasive that is. And as a woman who was assaulted in prison as well as sexually assaulted prior to prison, it's massively traumatising for me to be in this vulnerable situation with men. And I don't say that for people to feel sorry for me because I am being punished being on home detention. But I do it to raise awareness of how inhumane the system is and how invasive it is and, and how it continues to re-traumatise women that we know around 80% of women in custody have been assaulted. My personal experience is that I did not meet a single woman in prison who had not suffered at the hands of men, whether that was domestic violence, child abuse, rape, sexual assault. So... The system is traumatising. Sometimes they will come round to my house and do drug testing, which they do this in front of my children. Um, I have to carry my phone on me at all time and have a working mobile phone, which means I constantly have to have credit. Failure to comply with any of the rules or conditions that they set for you results in you going back in jail. So we exist in community with this constant threat over our head of being returned back to jail. And as a woman, a single mother with three children who's come out of prison and had to rebuild her entire life, which means including buying everything, furniture and everything again, the thought of going back in there just from that perspective of losing my children again and everything that I've built up around us is, is scary, let alone the fact that I would be in jail. And the other thing I'd want to say is that people on home detention have been forced into isolation in a time where no one wrote cute articles about what it's like to survive in isolation or in loneliness or no one has worried about how that's felt for us. Now, I've done almost two years on this regime and look, I am hugely grateful not to be behind bars and to be doing this at home at the moment with my children. But 
I've survived two years of absolute isolation where you can't just meet a friend for coffee or take your kids to the park or to the museum. It's really tough. And so I really want people to know that, yes, self-isolation from COVID-19 is difficult on people, and I particularly feel for women who are stuck in houses that aren't safe, but it is not home detention, it's not prison, and that's, I think, a really important distinction to make. And I would hope that everyone who's made that sort of reference on their social media or in their stories or on the radio can now sort of reflect and say, you know what, I am in a position of privilege to be isolating in home for most of us. It's a safe place to be isolated. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, uh, hopefully change their minds about uh, the broader prison industrial complex as well if they're if they're so concerned about this um yeah thank you so much for taking the time uh to talk with me just before we let you go where can listeners find some of the writing that you've done um and maybe do you have any causes that you'd like to promote to support people who are incarcerated absolutely look you can find me on twitter my handle is have a chat taps and I've also written a couple of articles for Indigenous X. So if you look up a tab of the lane on Indigenous X, then um, you would find my articles. Two of the, the uh, causes that I would like to promote is Sisters Inside, Debbie Kilroy, is running a Free Her campaign, asking for donations to free Aboriginal women who are incarcerated for not being able to pay fines. Essentially, in this country, we are making poverty a crime. I would encourage people to get on board, contribute where they can, or at least raise awareness of Debbie's campaign. The other thing is to support media outlets like Indigenous X, where they're giving voice to women like myself. During uh, International Women's Day, that whole week, they featured three stories that I'd written, and I was really grateful to have the opportunity as a criminalised woman to raise awareness and raise my voice um, for women and men on the inside. So, yes, I... Very grateful also to be prepared for this opportunity to talk. And yet, please think about abolition. Think about how we can reduce the need for people to be in custody and the harm that it brings to every man, woman and child. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tabitha. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Priya. Cause I just wanna move And you can come too Yeah, that's me plus you So tell me what we gon' do Cause I just wanna move Yeah, you can come too And one time for the crew So tell me what we gon' do you heard it all before, but I can find a flaw, and that I can't ignore, wanna know who you are, you probably get this all the time, you welcome the decline, since the minute that I seen you, baby girl, been on my mind, conversation, iron be on rotation, I'm gonna take my shot, no curve, no hesitation, finesse, perfect placement, my moves are tight, and I know she approved, cause the mood is right, she the energy, I need to make it through tonight, and we're dancing like there's not a single soul inside, she drinks a little, but tonight, she's a sober type, she loves to speak her mind like it's open mic, I pray to God that this club don't Close tonight. I never met a woman like this. She a prototype. No disrespect. You just one of a kind. Got me strong, and you ain't even trying. No lie. I just wanna move, and you can come too. Yeah, that's me plus you. So tell me what we gon' do. Cause I just wanna move. Yeah, you can come too. And one time for the 
Listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. So just now we heard my interview with Tabitha Lane on uh, the comparisons people are making between home detention, being incarcerated, and self-isolation during COVID-19. Next up, we're listening to an interview between Carly and Samadhi Verma from the Undocumented Migrant Solidarity Group, um, who's joining Carly to speak about the Undocumented Migrants COVID-19 Fund and Petition. Today, I'm joined by Sanmati Verma from the Undocumented Migrant Solidarity. Sanmati joins us today to talk about the Undocumented Migrant Solidarity COVID-19 Fund, as well as the petition. Welcome, Sanmati. Thank you. Thanks. Can you first start by talking about how this uh, campaign um, to support undocumented migrants uh, living in so-called Australia started? Sure. Um Undocumented Migrant Solidarity, I guess, first came together when a bunch of us um, found ourselves on a phone link-up. Um, it was a few, just a few weeks ago, um, and there were people there from, you know, migrant organising backgrounds, um, from migrant backgrounds themselves, um, people who worked in the union movement, um, people who were associated with Anti-Colonial Asian Alliance, all of whom were interested in... Um, how people from migrant communities were going to be affected by the COVID crisis. Um, and out of that, um, a bunch of us came together specifically um, to form a, a solidarity group around undocumented migrants, noting that there had been a lot of discussion um, correctly about the situation of temporary migrants and the way that temporary migrants are being shut out um, of income support arrangements. Um, but there had been no acknowledgement at all that there is um, a very stable and steady, sizable population of undocumented people in Australia. Um, and it seemed that of all moments, that disavowal um, was going to have extremely serious consequences. And so that is the reason that we came together. Can you tell listeners um, a little bit about the experiences of undocumented migrants in so-called Australia? Um, in the Action Network petition, which will 
maybe talk about a little bit later, um, it outlines that there are about 60,000 to 100,000 undocumented people. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I'm um, an Australian citizen. I'm from a migrant background and everyone um, in our solidarity group can say the same. This is why we're a solidarity group and in no way a representative group. Um, so, but what I know about the situation of people who are undocumented in Australia comes from my experience um, working and organising with the United Workers Union, um, formerly the National Union of Workers, um, who work and organise very, very actively with um, people working on farms. And so from that experience and from all of the research, basically, that's grown up um, around the experience of farm workers in Australia, we can tell that there are, at the very least, 60,000 undocumented people in Australia um, and up to 100,000. That number is just... um, like the the roughest of estimates, obviously, because there's no way of calculating the number of the undocumented. Um, And also that number is likely to grow, considering the way that the government has been extraordinarily slow with um, bringing in migration reform. Um, It's piecemeal and it's only available to a very limited group of people. Um, And so that's sort of the the rough estimates of the number of undocumented people. Um, A lot of those people are long-term undocumented, um, so people who were um, people from the Pacific um, who came over as um, Pacific workers, um, people who were former international students and who were affected by all of the really um, dramatic changes in 2009 um, and onwards that meant that there was no path to permanent residency anymore. And then people who were sort of um, brought over in, in, I guess, labour importation arrangements from Malaysia. Um, and so people who are undocumented, and particularly those who are um, long-term undocumented, live... Um, in a hyper-precarious situation, particularly in so-called Australia, um, not only because uh, they're shut out from um, sort of government support and um, medical assistance and medical care, but also because, you know, unlike in other countries, there's no kind of acknowledgement of undocumented status in Australia. Um, there's no discussion that people are undocumented or actually that that's a position that the economy creates and sustains. Um, meaning that there is uh, an enormous degree of danger around being undocumented. Um, The threat of mandatory detention that operates in Australia that doesn't operate in other countries, Um, you know, the threat of report by um, state government agencies, for instance, big roads, (laughs) if you go there to get a licence or a licence renewal, Um, all of these things being that the status of being undocumented is, is really hyper precarious. So when it comes to um, the petition, our our petition lays out um, what our our five um, solidarity demands are um, in relation to undocumented people in Australia, and they are um, a universal guarantee of Medicare, um, irrespective of visa status. And we note that that's been done on a state-by-state level, where different um, departments of health are sort of guaranteed um, a certain degree of medical care. Um, we say that that's not enough. It needs to be nationwide and it needs to be unconditional and it needs to be broader than just COVID-related treatment. There's certain, for instance, you know, flu shots. Um, these wouldn't be covered by the waiver arrangements that exist state by state. There needs to be Medicare for all. Um, secondly, we say that there needs to be a complete immigration firewall um, between all doctors and health providers and Department of Home Affairs. Um, We say that there needs to be universal basic income and income protection for undocumented workers. There needs to be a complete stop to immigration raids and detection activities in the community and no more 
um, detention and removal of undocumented people at this time. And fifth, and very importantly, we say that there needs to be um, an amnesty or a visa created for long-term undocumented workers. Um, and so these are all sort of demands that have been circulating um, amongst undocumented worker campaigns for some time. And all that we've done is really brought them together in one place. Absolutely. And, I mean, undocumented migrants were already um, feeling all of these things well before COVID-19 has hit. Um, and now it's just amplified um, a lot of the issues that the government has never raised. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's uh, um, absolutely correct. COVID, as, you know, everyone knows, has had this, um, you know, if you look at the way that death and infection rates are sort of distributed across the US where the transmission rates are um, just phenomenal. Um, there's kind of no secret that COVID um, operates in such a way is uh, that it sort of disproportionately affects and kills um, people who are hyper-precarious or underprivileged. Um, so co- all the COVID crisis has done is really show up that, one, the extraordinarily um, precarious position of undocumented people in Australia, um, but also simultaneously the critical work that um, Australia requires undocumented people to do, um, for instance, on farms, you know, in commercial cleaning operations. This is sort of now considered frontline work. It's emergency work. It's essential work. Um, but it's being done by a, a population of people who are completely disavowed and neglected, um, even, you know, by more progressive attempts to bring people into the welfare fold. Mm. So, as well as the petition, um, which you're calling on listeners and people to sign, um, there's also the GoFundMe page. Um, so, where will this money that people are uh, um, putting money towards going? So, we started the um, GoFundMe um, campaign as sort of the... Well, I mean, obviously, Undocumented Migrant Solidarity is not kind of fundamentally like a charity enterprise, but a solidarity enterprise. Um, and... You know, so we um, started immediately with a group of organisations that we were all immediately connected with um, and we reacted to the sort of material needs of their members that um, organisations were bringing forth. So specifically, um, our listed organisations, when we started the GoFundMe campaign, um, were the uh, Jafari Association um, of Australia, the Tamil Refugee Council, um, that do extraordinary and really, really public work um, with Tamil asylum seekers and migrants, um, and also the United Workers' Union, and specifically their um, members of the farms team, um, and um, also in the contract cleaning team, the commercial cleaning team. Um, so, the, uh, sorry, also I should say the... Um, Jafari Association of Australia is a grassroots organisation that's based in Melbourne South East that works with um, mostly um, Hazara, so from Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, asylum seekers, students um, and migrants, um, and mostly young people um, who kind of come in and out of status depending on where they're at in their migration journey. So those are the sort of listed organisations that we're working with and the money is going towards material aid packages for their members. Um, We've left it because we're a solidarity fund to the organisations to define um, based on need how they give out that money. But um, from what we're hearing at this stage, it's going to be um, sort of in like regular parcels of a regular amount. Um, so a regular amount given to families and a regular amount given to individuals. Um, and then if we manage to exceed 
the 30,000 mark or we get to 60,000, then we're going to have those organisations going to have more flexibility about how they um, apply the funds in more high-need situation, so uh, as opposed to just immediate emergency relief, um, sort of more long-term um, support for families. Um, we're also, I guess, as could be expected, being approached by um, you know other groups and other organisations that have been working um, with people who are undocumented in the community, um, sort of on, on a more piecemeal basis about in individual emergency needs. And really what people are talking about at the moment is really dire basic stuff. Um, rent unable to be paid, um, medical expenses unable to be covered, um, income support that's not available anymore. So like really very, very basic, like, you know, like sustenance of life type um, needs that um, the organisations are, are speaking about. Um, and so, as I said, we've reached, um, or we're, we're just about to cross um, our initial threshold of 30,000, which is what we were seeking, which is pretty phenomenal, given that the campaign's only been up for about four days. Um, now we're asking for double that, <laughs> given that we've had double the number of organisations approach us. Um, and we're going to see how we how we go, but literally any support that um, people could put in would be extraordinary. Um, the level of people's need is is just absolutely um, extraordinary and literally provided for nowhere. Um, and, and this is pretty pretty much it, other than sort of support that people can wrangle for themselves um, through different charity organisations um, and local councils, and whether or not they're um, they feel safe enough to approach local councils um, is another question. So the, the money goes a really long way to doing really crucial emergency work. And Sanmati, um, how can listeners uh, find out uh, more about the Undocumented Migrant Solidarity Group and also the links to the petition um, and also the GoFundMe page? Um, I would commend everyone to go to our Facebook page. Um, so we've got all of our demands really conveniently packaged up there. We've got a sort of campaign statement um, where we set out in greater detail the reasons why we're making these five demands that I spoke of. Um, there are links there both both to the petition and the GoFundMe. Um, and just, you know, if people are nervous about the GoFundMe, this is a really awful time for everybody. Even a tiny donation, we've just had hundreds of donations of like relatively small amounts we haven't taken institutional funding or anything like that um just even 10 bucks would be nice um but everything is contained on our facebook page so i'd ask everyone to go there we're just undocumented migrants solidarity well thank you so much sanmati for joining us on 3cr thank you thanks very much it was a pleasure and that was a conversation that I had with Sanmati Verma from the Undocumented Migrant Solidarity. All right, so it's looking like that's like all we've got time for today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Uh, we had a really amazing packed show. We spoke with Roxanne Moore. We heard some poetry from Elena Gomez, a new track from Basil Byrne. We spoke with Tabitha Lean and also Sanmati Verma. All incredible interviews. I personally cannot wait to listen back. Um, and also... Good work, all of us, for recording our first ever show over Zoom all together. Yeah, definitely. And massive shout out to our producer, Rosie, for all of the incredible hard work behind the scenes putting this together. Thanks, Rosie. And stay tuned, everyone, for Lost in Science. And we'll be back next week. Same time, not same place. <laughs>